So Robert E. Lee was a great general. And Abraham Lincoln developed a phobia. He couldn't beat Robert E. Lee. He was going crazy. I don't know if you know this story. But Robert E. Lee was winning battle after battle after battle. And Abraham Lincoln came home. He said, I can't beat Robert E. Lee. And he had all of these generals. They looked great. They were the top of their class at West Point. They were the greatest people. There's only one problem. They didn't know how to hell to win. They didn't know how to fight. They didn't know how. And one day, it was looking really bad. And Lincoln just said, you hardly knew his name. And they said, don't take him. He's got a drinking problem. And Lincoln said, I don't care what problem he has. You guys aren't winning. And his name was Grant, General Grant. And he went in and he knocked the hell out of everyone. And you know the story. They said to Lincoln, you can't use him anymore. He's an alcoholic. And Lincoln said, I don't care if he's an alcoholic. Frankly, give me six or seven more just like him. He started to win. Grant really did. He had a serious problem, a serious drinking problem. But man, was he a good general. And he's finally being recognized as a great general. But Lincoln had almost developed a phobia because he was having a hard time with a true great fighter and a great general, Robert E. Lee. Okay. Hello, everybody. It's Chapo coming at you. Today, uh, it's uh, just me and Matt coming at you, but don't fret. We are joined by longtime friend of the show, historian Matt Karp. Matt, how's it going? It's good. You guys are lucky to have me now that I've embarked on my um, legacy media career. I just, you know, I don't know if I'm really down to be slumming it with the podcast world too much any longer. Well, you can can still impart some of your jewels to our wretched listeners, because today we, of course, are going to be talking about uh, the ongoing and mutating culture war as it surrounds the teaching of American history. You have a new essay in Harper's out, and I thought, who better to take us back in time? We got to get back in time. So tell me, Professor, is this the 50s or 1999? Tell me, Doctor, where are we going this time? We got to get in the DeLorean. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's like the place of history in uh, politics today. On on one level, the whole premise of the piece is that uh, we're in a sort of unique or distinctive moment in which history, and I think this is true, that, you know, uh, the politics of history in, in sort of scare quotes are everywhere and especially prominent and historians have uh, you know, are sort of keen to get in on this, uh, on the sort of the theater of the of these politics. Um, but on the other hand, this is also you're right. This is part of the wheel of fortune of the sort of endless culture war that has you know gripped American politics since you know, uh, you know basically since mass class politics died 50 years ago or more. And and so I mean there was definitely an iteration like this in the 90s. I was you know it was a little bit before my. 
um, my conscious time, certainly as before I became an historian. But I mean, you had a, a you know real shots fired in the Clinton administration over the national history standards, at, where you know you know our friend Lynn Cheney, you know liberal hero uh, today, but at the time was um, you know sort of vociferous critic of. Uh, this sort of academic-led effort to sort of bury, you know, America's great heroes. Bob Dole was giving speeches in 96 about, you know, Alexander Graham Bell is being written out of the curriculum, you know, and Paul Revere and so on. So, and, you know, and then, you know, and there was all these, you know, controversies about, say, the Smithsonian's uh, Enola Gay exhibit, you know, about the dropping the bomb in Hiroshima that made the U.S. look bad for dropping a bomb that killed half, you know, uh, 50,000 people. Um you know, so in some level, maybe we're just due for a kind of round of history wars every 20, 30 years, and it's just eternal recurrence, and and this is just our iteration. But in other ways, I did think that this moment is different than from, from the 90s culture war for some interesting reasons, both on the right and the left. Yeah, I want to get into that in your, your Harper's essay. I mean, one thing is for certain, it's, it's boom times for historians of the Civil War. And uh, Matt, you're going to be, you know... You're going to be cashing in on that on the uh, on the Chapo Trap House show today. <laughs> Hell I yeah. already have, my friend. Well, I mean, well, one, it's one of the guaranteed income. One of the things that's uh, I, I guess new to this like current iteration of um, culture war as it relates to the teaching of American history, and uh, is the term CRT or critical race theory. And before we get into your essay, I re- I have to ask you because you are a professor of history, and I'm not asking this to be intentionally obtuse or churlish or anything. But what is critical race theory? Because I know, like, there are words associated with it that, like, sort of light up that, like, oh, that's the part of my brain that recognizes where those words come from. But I don't know, like, how to place it in any context or define it in any meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually the best person to go to for this. I'm not a critical race theorist, nor am I, you know, hugely familiar with its, uh, with its practitioners, if you will. But, I mean, I think... Uh, you know, broadly, uh, the the sort of the way, you know, if you're looking for the an act, I mean, obviously, the way it, it functions in politics is uh, just a, uh, you know, uh, a kind of soft target for uh, anyone who hates America, you know, from the right. But I think, I think, you know, as an as a sort of an academic movement, I mean, in, in, a, in a broad sense, it's an effort to sort of, um, and there are there are different strands, I, I would say, of, of people who might consider themselves either under the rubric of critical race theory or like sympathetic to critical race theory. But I think to the extent that it's useful, I would say it has something to do with it's it's the historically uh, an emphasis on the way that, you know, sort of American racism or the history of, of white supremacy in 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 the United States. This is just this is not really the theory part. This is just the history kind of has tended to sort of uh, override and undermine whatever sort of stated liberal principles um you know, stemming from the Enlightenment forward uh, that, you know, ostensibly define, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the norms of our politics and society. And that and that the only way to sort of uh, understand those norms or those politics or that society is to uh, is to sort of under is to sort of to censure that the history of that racism and the way that that racism racism has like sort of deformed and and even in some ways, you know, actually, you know, structured uh, the even the the sort of the the lovely liberal things that we like. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, frankly, I mean, it's not that's not really a very good definition because I'm not overly sympathetic with to, you know, sort of a critical race theory derived view of U.S. history. I think it you know, I think if anything, 
some of the problems in academic history today come from a kind of race reductionism um, that 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 uses some of that language. But I think broadly, you know, that the the sort of a critical focus on the way the centrality of racism in U.S. history is not it's not a bad thing. It's obviously there. It's a question of how you contextualize it. Well, okay, like getting into that, um, you 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 open your piece by quoting uh, Gore Vidal and his sort of famous quote that uh, Americans learn nothing because we remember nothing. We exist in the United States of amnesia, as Gore put it. Um, I'm not sure if this has changed a great deal since he said it, but how has the demand to remember and face and hold history accountable uh, for the savage conditions of the present? Like, how is that, how is this reckoning with, the, with history and American history sort of uh, come to the fore in a way that it hasn't before? Yeah, I mean, I guess the way I, I, I'd like to break it down, this is just the way I did things in the piece. So if you've read it, then, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to hear this already again. But, um, you know, I think, I think on the right, there have been changes both on the right and on the left. And I would say, you know, one thing that I sort of flagged that I don't think has really come through in the discourse is the way in which the right has actually gone into retreat in a significant sense in terms of defending the lost cause. If you go through the history of you know, the last round of the, the history wars, you know, volume one um, in the 90s, you know, you see all these, you know, ghouls from the Bush administration, Ashcroft and, you know, Gail Norton and other people in the in the, you know, who were in Bush's cabinet who, you know, had many controversies because they had just sort of outright praised the Confederacy or said it was a bad thing that the North won the Civil War. And, you know, the the that in, in a funny way, that element of, you um, of sort of Confederate lost cause politics is really not present e- even in the even in the you know Trumpy right. It's interesting. I mean, Trump himself you know waddles out there and kind of talks about you know what a great general Robert E. Lee is. But if you look at what's actually happening in Congress, I mean, they voted to strip the, you know the Confederate names off all the bases. They to you know just this week, the Juneteenth vote was unanimous in the Senate. I mean, if you look at the MLK vote, the MLK Day vote, to make that a national holiday, um, you know, Republicans voted against that the John first McCain time. John McCain voted against it famously. Yeah, exactly. And and half the party continued to vote against it into the 80s, even even after it was passed. So in some ways, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that they're, you know, that, that Republicans are progressive on this, you know, obviously. But I think it's, it's just interesting to note that for all the talk of this kind of Confederate lost cause stuff, they really have um, they really have sort of with you know um, withdrawn from the field of kind of you know bumping up you know the the boys in gray as as the sort of true heroes of, of Americanism, which is an interesting thing to talk about why. But I mean, well, you you point out that it's like it's it's certainly not out of any um I don't know uh, uh, moral or historically accurate um, uh, sentiments that are welling up within them. It's more about how like they've they've retreat they've done a tactical retreat on sort of Dunning School revisionism. But because they, they, they did that because it allows them to uh, pursue a new campaign in what is like they're always the rhetorical take of owning the libs. You've got to yes. keep owning the libs, but, you, but like they're owning them on their own terms. So they're saying like, – so it's like it's a focus on, oh, like they, they – it's not that they're tearing down the statue of Stonewall Jackson. It's that they're tearing down the, – they, they want to tear down the statue of Abraham Lincoln. And totally. It's, it's D'Souzaism. I mean you guys have done uh, some great programming on this, but it's like the, the, this complete – you know, it's the it's the, you know, the apotheosis of the troll. And that's and in some ways. I mean, I mean, I, I think it is worth thinking about this. It, it, it really is a deeper measure of defeat than they think, because they're just simply taking the narrative of, you know, progressive history that focuses on that, that really does in some ways in the last 30 years in the academy centers, 
you know, um, uh, in some ways centers the African-American experience as a sort of moral measure of American progress uh, and, and, and just trying to claim it and <laughs> just trying to be like, well, those guys are all Republicans. Yeah, no, I, I mean, mean that's, that's it, the Prager U Dinesh D'Souza move. Is they're like, did you know Frederick Douglass was a Republican? Exactly. You know Abraham Lincoln was, uh, you know, like he freed the slaves and he was a Republican. Did you know that? Did you know that the KKK was uh, affiliated with the Democratic Party? It's like they keep the heroes of the civil rights movement and, and the abolition movement like, you know, Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther, King, Martin Luther King Jr. But they just make the villains different. And like the like the villains are, are, are Nancy Pelosi. Totally. And that, instead I mean, that's of like, instead of, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan and, uh, you know, Dinesh D'Souza and Dennis Prager and all their friends. And here's where that was sort of my ultimate where I ultimately landed with the right is that is that really I think where they are. And this, I think, does mark a difference between the right today and the right in the 90s is that they just don't give a fuck. They, they just really don't. I do think that the, the Lynn Cheney's and the Bob Dole's had a kind of earnest, you know, filio pietistic kind of. Um, you know, sense of duty and devotion to the founders and to universal ideals of American freedom. And we're kind of sincerely offended at these, you know, sort of critical historical takes. Um, and I think I don't think I mean, Matt, now you've got like Matt Gatz up there being like, oh, we need to say the Pledge of Allegiance 17 times today because we're Americans. You know, it's like there's no there's no meat there that that tradition is in belongs with, you know, with uh, the, you know, Cheney, the 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 lesser. And with and with uh, Ben Sass and, and people like that who are who, you know, who aren't really driving the bus for the Republicans, what they all they care about is owning the libs and they don't need they're only jumping on this history train now because they think it's a chance to like push, uh, you know, put put, you know, hit a soft target in the culture war. That's all they want uh, in order to sort of, you know, you know, stir up a hornet's nest. They have no real sincere i don't believe the 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 gop today has any real sincere kind of nationalistic commitment to a, an american narrative that is being um de, you know that is being you know traduced by this new history yeah like the, the, right now the entire mobilization is just in opposition to this thing this amorphous thing called critical race theory there's really little coherent uh, uh like a positive narrative that they're trying to put in place of it other than you know america's great uh the constant the 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 Declaration of Independence is the greatest document ever written, blah, blah, blah. That's it, though. There's nothing – they're not like – they don't want to fight any specific battles other than to just deny the, the any kind of claim that there is a stain on the national estuncheon of any kind. Like that that that, that slavery was in, is in any way a, a lingering uh, injury uh, or that or that we have – that we have not like totally – transcended it by our just Americanness since then. Totally. Yeah, there's no positive program. I mean, I think that's it speaks to I mean, on one hand, you could say it's a weakness. I, I think it is a sort of ideological weakness, because in some sense, like, I, I mean, I think that the the hallmark of the right today is incoherence and, you know, disorganization rather than, uh, you know, a clear path to fascism. On the other hand, I mean, that's that's just, you know, where I come down in those in those in that little sandlot of the Internet. But um, but but in other ways, it's a strength because it doesn't it, it means that they're sort of infinitely flexible to, you know, oppose and reject and troll any any, you know, attempt to sort of push a narrative from the left. And I think in a lot of ways that corresponds to other forms of politics today where, um, you know, there it, and it's, it's easier to break something down and in effect serve the status quo than to try to build anything. Um, and you know, that that's inherently, you know, they're, they're utilizing that advantage for sure right now. I mean, it's like the, the classic thing, like where they've, 
you know, they've they've given up any attempt to try to, to make Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement villains of American history, which very much wasn't the case um, as it was going on, and certainly for a long time after that. Um, so because like you know they can point to Martin Luther King and say, oh, he said that he wanted uh, everyone to be judged by their character and not their skin color. He's one of us. And it doesn't that sound different than you know like the, the liberals you're hearing today? But they have nothing to say or do with the figures like you know Fannie Lou Hamer or Bayard Rustin. However, as you point out in your piece. Neither do neither does the liberal side now either. So what, what like what is it? What is that? So like the the exclusion of people like that. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because on the, uh, I think on the liberal transformations are actually probably the bulk of the piece because I think it's it's um, it's an interesting moment where you know you have uh, an intense you know in some ways laudable commitment to excavating um, the dark all the darknesses in the American past, which you know I really shouldn't denounce too loudly. Um, because as you guys pointed out, you know, I, I rode that, 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 that gravy train to tenure with my first book. And I'm in, you know, speaking less cynically for a minute. I sincerely, you know, I was a sincere product of this ideological movement too. this. I don't want to say this rediscovery of slavery, but the politics of slavery and the kind of the, the centrality essentially of chattel slavery to understanding, Amer- you know, pre-Civil War American politics and society and economics uh, whatever your take on the various, you know, interesting controversies about slavery's relationship to capitalism, et cetera, that is a that is a phenomenon of the last 30 years in the academy. And it's and it's a um, not that historians before didn't talk about slavery, but um, I think it's absolutely centered now in a way that, you know, makes sense to me. I mean, it made that, that that's the that's the premise of my first book about U.S. foreign policy and, and, and how slavery shaped it from, you know, soup to nuts in the antebellum period. So it's not that I, you know, have any dissent from this 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 excavation process in some sense historically, but it is striking, like like you say, Will, that the the way that uh, the figures that are pushing sort of a radical revision of America's past are are coming from very different places and maybe and often espousing very different contemporary politics. You have this really interesting phenomenon of the kind of historical radical and the present day moderate, you know, how the New York Times, we all remember how they, you know, for the last five years, how they've covered Bernie Sanders and any kind of left wing, you know, economic or, or class political movement with, you know, ranging from kind of you know, amused condescension to, you know, vitriolic opposition and, and, and scaremongering. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, they, they mustered one vote out of 30, right, for the for, for Sanders in the even even when he was, you know, leading the polls or, you know, top of the near near the top of the polls uh, in in 2020. Meanwhile, uh, they come out with this, you know, really dramatic revision of all American history in the 1619 Project, which is the sort of the locus of right-wing criticism and even centrist, some centrist liberal criticism for being um, this daringly revisionist radical take on on the American past. And it, you know, just on the material level, before we get into the ideological problems, I think, with with the, the sort of this new liberal focus on, on origins and essences and so on, you know, the, just just looking at it from a vulgar materialist perspective, you know, it's it's so different from, say, when the new left you know, you had, you know, new left historians who were writing similar things and, you know, getting hounded out of the academy in the 60s and 70s, more or less, for their heresy. And now, you know, people are winning Pulitzers and, you know, getting quoted by Chuck Schumer on the, on the you know, the floor of the Senate and so on. And it's just a very different, um, you know, and it's, of course, it's of a piece with everything that, you know, you guys have been talking about for five years is this kind of, um, you know, a, a certain kind of way in which, 
the you know democratic establishment is very excited to play uh culture war politics uh and and needle a certain side of the right uh without engaging in any kind of material politics along those same lines and i i i think it's impossible not to see um some of this liberal history stuff from that from that perspective I, there's more to say but i do agree with that critique it's sort of like in in a way, like we, like it, it, the language is so focused on 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 facing up to the past, and like I said, like and but it, but in the context of the, of current savage inequalities in American politics and culture, and that like it's the insistence that we we can't do we like we can't fix any of these current problems now until we address and like encounter the past in like in a specific way, and it's the, this 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 intense focus on sort of uh, owning up to or, or facing our past and like. Or, but like, but also, also not really look. It's sort of like, it, but it, not to say that's wrong, but it, it lacks a sort of focus on like, what can we learn from the past, or like, like is there a, is there a model for the future here? Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's it's you know beyond the sort of materialist critique that like you know this this is being used, and I think I probably wouldn't uphold the most aggressively sort of cynical version, although it it, it does probably work in for a number in a number of cases here. But I think there are a num- there are a lot of people who are sincerely committed to this sort of radical revision of the past on its own terms and are, you know, more or less indifferent to the, you know, the material and the political alliances that they may be, you know, uh, inadvertently advancing, uh, you know, I- I- in effect by kind of endorsing this this these these, you know, culture war politics of history. But but I think even on its own terms, uh, and this is really was the, the sort of the teeth of the piece, was even beyond the fact that, oh, you know, um, we know that Nicole Hannah-Jones hates Bernie Sanders, blah, 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 blah. But beyond the 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 actual political positioning, I feel like the, the, the issue for me with 1619, with, uh, you know, other iterations of this, uh, uh, of this sort of big critical take on American history, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, this massive bestseller, is kind of follows along these same lines. Is this sort of the airlessness and the futurelessness of this of this vision of history, this, the motionlessness of it, the idea that you draw a straight line from a sort of a dark origin to a permanent essence? You know, these metaphors of America's DNA and original sin, it's biblical and biological. I mean, th- these are, as far as I can tell, just philosophically reactionary ways to understand Human history that you know to me is a, is a story of of movement and struggle and uh, possibility and yeah you have you know you have heroic victories and you have crushing defeats and from the from the left perspective the latter are a lot more common than the former but to 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 sort of in effect write a lot of that struggle out of history which I, I really do feel that many of the, the the current kind of continuity and origin focus history does is I think not only um, you know, problematic in its in its sort of the material alliances that are that are that are happening. But I think it's it's a dead end philosophically, intellectually, and politically because you 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 end up you know you end up paralyzing yourself. Well, I mean, I mean, it's 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 right there in, in the words. I mean, like you said, like original sin. Like you can't you can't get out of original sin in the Bible. And 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 if you well, know, I mean, at least with original sin, like you could you know uh, you could be born again in the, the the light of Christ which i think is really what these people are sort of assuming like there is i mean this is the end stage of american uh, uh puritanism where, where it's been turned into just a secular uh liberalism and 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 that that is a politics that has given up the idea of mass organization mass politics and struggle and it's become a totally a politics of individual 
uh, uh, virtual transcendence. And the idea, the thought is, well, if enough people, you know, expose themselves to these harsh truths, then that will just make a transformation that will then just suddenly make us all better people. And therefore, our institutions won't be exploitative anymore because they will be peopled with people who have seen the light. But like there's another word they use all the time that shows that they don't even really believe that, which is talking about DNA. You can't change your fucking DNA. What are you going to do, sit on a microwave? Like if, if our DNA is is structured by this like unbridgeable racial racial chasm, then politics, left wing politics, any kind of ameliorative politics is fundamentally impossible. And just yes, from the from a point of view of trying to make something that's historically explanatory, how do you explain the end of slavery if that's the case? Totally. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to push this too hard. This is probably you know this is thin ice, but I mean. It strikes me when you think about these arguments basically from from science and from religion stressing, um, in effect, permanence. Um, You know, these are these are these are fundamentally right wing arguments that are used, you know, throughout American history to justify all sorts of horrible atrocities. And I know including slavery. And I know, obviously, you know, I'm not suggesting that, you know, um, you know, New York Times magazine editor Jake Silverstein is, you know, a covert you know, pro-slavery agent, but uh, not at all. But I do think that the that 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 people have sort of been trapped by, in effect, the sort of um, what they what they that the sort of the moral hit, the kind of high that they get. Uh, you know, as Matt says, the sort of individual virtue high that they get in in embracing this kind of politics and not really realizing. Um, you know what a dead end it is. It, it, not just not just politically, but intellectually, to sort of really understand how anything happened. It's it's the sort of you know just this big heavy blanket that you throw down over centuries of of, of actually struggle and progress and more struggle. Um, and it's it's to me it's uh, it's antithetical to to certainly just to a Marxist understanding of the past, but to really any 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 left wing understanding. I don't think there's any way that you can make sense of this new historical emphasis outside of the context of the failure of, of last year's protest movement to gain any significant political victories. I, I think that like in the aftermath of the, the failure of, of last year's protests to really change anything at the, at the level of policy has led people to kind of fall back to what uh, feels better and what is easier in the absence of any structured, uh, organized resistance to all of the, the, the horrible, you know, uh, racial uh, uh, injustice and, and generalized, uh, ever-increasing exploitation that is you know, consuming people at every strat of, of American society. Uh, and, and as a result, people want to, people, people without an ability to express resistance to that meaningfully are going to take to the battles that feel like they can be won. And since you have a situation where the people who are making culture, the people who are making media are fired by more than anything, a deep sense of shame and guilt about, uh, about their position in an exploitative society, their desire to expurgate their uh, relationship to it by emphasizing things like our national horror and, 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 and expressing their own willingness to confront the, the demons of American history to exculpate themselves. And with those people in the media ex- creating this context, there's nothing left for the rest of us to do, but just take a side. And then you have, of course, the, the mercenary cynics on the right 
who see an opportunity to whip up their dullard followers with this boogeyman, which is just another word for every other boogeyman that they've been trotting out in the culture wars uh, because of this, because they're stuck in the same from the other end, the same uh, prison as the rest of us where culture keeps pushing to the into liberalism and, and strident liberalism to make up for the consciences of the people who make it as conditions get worse and worse in this country. And that creates this uh, response among like the grassroots of America's reaction who are uh, inflamed by the persistence of this stuff. Uh, and, you know, uh, Freddie DeBoer called uh, the, the CRT movement or whatever you want to call it uh, a consolation prize for the left, but it's just as much a consolation prize for the right. These people wanted to be rounding up uh, uh, subversives <laughs> for the prescription lists. They wanted to be watching executions of uh, Clinton hangers-on and child eaters on uh, Fox News. And instead, they're going back to Obama-era uh, culture war. But that's all that we have. That's that's the only meat that we can consume. And so we're both – everybody is stuck in this this sterile cycle. It, just like think about like the, we talked earlier about like the sort of the what was it the standard conservative orthodoxy about um the American past and and, and the teaching of history and like they, well, they, they you used to have a kind of view like it was like you know Moses coming down from Mount Sinai you know like you know don't mess with the tablets there there's nothing that needs to be revised about it it's perfect the way it is previously the kind of liberal liberal orthodoxy about American history is that um there's all these, there's all these bad things in it. But it always follows this, you know, there's this, um, there's a tragic element to it, but it's always following along this trajectory of improvement that, you know, like uh, you quote um, uh, Bill Clinton in your piece and his famous quote that uh, there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed by what's right with America. Like, so how, how do you see like uh, this current, uh, like the, the current shift in orthodoxy is cutting against that? Maybe even also and also pointing out a lot of the shortcomings of this uh, liberal narrative of uh, ever ever increasing progress in America. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the that 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 is an that is an interesting shift within, and you see in some of the sort of older generation of historians kind of you know pushing back against 1619s, you know, not just its you know its interpretations specifically, but its its sort of narratives. You see that kind of um the the rear guard of that kind of um you know the obama phrase that i think is along the same lines is you know the what is it, the moral arc of the universe is long but it bends toward justice which you know actually ironically goes all the way but goes back to martin luther king and then the you know the radical abolitionist theodore parker um who 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 did not see it in the way that i think um obama or n obama tended to see it and frankly neither did king see it as a kind of um, guarantor of, of, of sort of smooth movement towards, you know, the moral right, but uh, a kind of uh, a basic possibility that allows radical struggle to sort of seize that right. You know, that's how Parker and King used it. But I think in the hands of, yeah, of the, of the, in the, the broad Clinton-Obama, I mean, I said, I think it really, for me, in, in a sense that this narrative cohered probably around, you know, the time of Kennedy, and if, if not earlier, but I think that, you know, he really embodied it. Um, and I, I, I mean, Biden summons it from time to time, you know, in, in some context. But I think for liberals, I don't know, under the age of 50, it's just not it's just deeply unpersuasive right now that um, and and I think 
the result, unfortunately, has not been to sort of, I mean, and this is this is for this is for material reasons. And this does have to do with the sort of the decline of the working class and the decline of organized labor in politics. But but, you know, the 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 dissatisfaction and the kind of palpable um, inadequacy of that narrative of that kind of like uh, of, of the sort of the patness of this this arc of progress idea um, has produced you know, what Matt was talking about, you know, this kind of uh, these this particular, you know, strain form of, of, of if you could call it radicalism that, uh, you know, I talked about it. actually the the scholar Wendy Brown, the theorist Wendy Brown wrote about this really powerfully 20, 30 years ago. She saw this coming. She really called her shot that this kind of disbelief in the future that I think has affected not just liberals, but broad sections of the left too, you know, since mm-hmm. the the fall of um, Berlin Wall, et cetera, and not that not even, even if you weren't invested in the specific you know communist project, um, there's there's a there's a palpable loss of faith, you know, on the on the broad left too. I mean that you know you guys might share, but uh, and and what Wendy Brown talked about was that with losing this belief in progress, which really was a thing that um, you know. Lots of Marxists believed in too, you know. Not 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 that um, not that not that it would automatically arrive, but that you know the the sort of science of history would was absolutely going to vindicate um, proletarian revolution. Losing that, losing that faith is it, it, there is a kind of um, you know combined with all the as I said the material things that are happening. There's a kind of it's an ungre you know she calls it an ungrievable loss where it's like okay we don't believe in history as theology we don't believe we have a destiny or a horizon or anything. This is leftists and liberals. And, uh, you know, so what what do we turn to? Who do we hold responsible for that? You know, who do we hold culpable for that? Well, in, in many cases, we hold the past culpable for it. We we turn to prosecute the sins and crimes and, you know, genetic uh, malformations of, of the past, um, which is, an, is a morally attractive move because they are so flagrant. They are so hideous. You know, the history of American slavery and Racial oppression since slavery is undeniable and 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 disgusting, and yet um, the kind of the idea to sort of that that is going to be the replacement for a belief in you know uh, for 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 a belief in a sort of egalitarian revolution that pro- that produces a, a an egalitarian future is 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 really problematic because you end up you know gnawing on your own on your own elbows and you end up. Um, you know, going in search of something that can never give you, uh, you go in search of, you know, Virginia planters instead of Goldman Sachs. And it, it can never give you, um, leaving aside the, the sort of the political alliance that you need to build to sort of challenge capital, the power of capital. You can't even intellectually get started if you're, if you're, if you're trapped into this worldview. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if the future doesn't exist and, and no one has really any belief in the future anymore, then, like, the past is the only thing that's real and it's the only thing worth fighting over. And you talk about, like, you know, it, it used to be uh, the sort of liberal narrative about history is that, you know, by fits and starts, uh, things are getting better and you can, like, look at the record and kind of trace it. And But, like, the history is a, a, is a guarantor of, of progress. But now it's this kind of shift where it's like it's, history is a guarantor of, the, of not of, of the opposite. And we get into this thing you quote Sil- Silverstein, the New York Times Magazine editor, of talking about history as metaphor. Like, what, what, what does it mean to believe that history is a metaphor? Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the the metaphor wars, right? About is, you know, is uh, what's the what's the reigning metaphor? I mean, and this is where, you know, 
if your if your vision of history is you know a moral arc, you know you just all you have to do is you know hop in, uh, you know. And I, I think there are I probably shouldn't overstate this. There are probably a good chunk of certainly kind of like boomer liberals who really still probably see the world this way who are like you know want to you know just Joe Biden meme you know get in loser we're redeeming history you know and, and, <laughs> or something who who want to believe in the in the moral arc still. Um, I, I do think that there are that there are some people who still want to find that metaphor and and Biden does does play with that. Uh, but I think increasingly, yeah, that the dominant metaphors are these biblical biological ones. And um, they're they're really fucking chilling, frankly. And um, uh, but yeah, but I mean, I guess, well, what you're maybe what you're getting at with that question is. Okay, so what? What's if history's metaphor? Then you know, uh, is is that not sort of a problem for um, for actually achieving material material change in the present? If we're all we're doing is you know basically lit crit uh, on the past, that's 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 worrying. You talk at the end of your piece about um, the, the problems with sort of a, a like a origins based history. You know, like um, like a, uh, America's future: colon origins. You know, like, like it's everything, everything's everything's a prequel now. You know, so like the 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 easy but sometimes limited ways in which you can you can look at history and choose specific dates where you can be like, that's when it all started, or like this this is the most important thing that you need to know. It all started here. Like that, that there's this dramatic moment which suggests that like you know if you had you know the DeLorean, you could go back and change that moment, or you could alter the arc of history in a different way. But like um, like why is it from a, from the perspective of a historian? Why is that a limited perspective about like whether it's the 1619 project or Trump's the Trump administration's rather idiotic and spurious uh, counter to that the 1776 commission? And yeah, just, I mean, uh, obviously, like, both of them, you know, whiff completely on the true origins of all of these problems, which is when the ancient, you know, alien hominid species, you know, visited Earth and seeded, uh, you know, seeded <laughs> yes, that is, various, you know, uh, 2001 you know, is the only date that counts. Absolutely, various <laughs> kind of like larval pods that that then produced uh, this this simulation of, of 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 life on Earth. Yeah, I mean, yeah, origins. I mean, it is, it is, it, it has an undeniable appeal, and I think you're, I think it's actually you, you're right to sort of connect it to our the ins- the insatiability of our appetite for it, um, you know, in our entertainment because I think it's the same idea, and it's like if we can get this prequel right, then you know that's going to explain everything that we know and live and breathe, the air we breathe now. Um, you know, that really nails, it. I mean, a sequel is a weaker thing than a prequel, you know, arguably we could, we could work this up, but arguably this is the, the phenomenon of the prequel itself is, is, is a, is a sort of, you know, arts and culture version of the same, the same kind of disbelief and futurelessness that we're talking about, because, you know, what happens next is a smaller thing to how we got here. You know, that's the sort of the, the, the question with existential heft. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously it's a, it, there, there, there are, the idea that origins are essences is a, is a vision of history that, and I know I'm, I'm probably in the piece, I'm, you know, you could say that I'm not fully doing justice to every single essay in the 1619 project. And that's fair because I'm not accused. I don't want to accuse every single author in there of, of denying historical change. That's too broad. But I think the, the deep, the, the sort of the deep intellectual thrust of this is in that direction, is to do, you know, the kind of um, to sort of the grand reveal of if we can if we can plot this moment and see where we came from, then um, that explains who we are. 
rather than mapping this the sort of the the decades and the centuries of of struggle and change i mean there's you know it's like the civil the it's it is baffling to me just on 1619 for a minute that that the Civil War literally, the anti-slavery movement and the Civil War literally do not appear in that entire 100-page <laughs> collection, except, you know, they were like, we're going to center African-American history at the core of U.S. history. Yes, let's do that. Like, and and yet, and then we're going to just only talk about the Civil War in, in the sense of one meeting Lincoln had where he yelled at Frederick Douglass. That was the Civil War. The Civil War was like uh, angry Abe in the White House. You know, there's no, there's, you know, there's no 54th Massachusetts. It's like, whatever. None of that matters. It's, it's, it, these are specific things. But I don't understand how you can begin to apprehend uh, where we are now, including the very specific, you know, inequalities and, and oppressions that, uh, that people face today without thinking about this, this vast, you know, uh, accumulation of change. That is informed by struggle against it, all sorts of struggles, struggles from the left, struggles from the right, from above and from below. And the idea that it's like, oh, no, what really matters is is going back to that, you know, to that uh, to that moment of conception. I mean, it is it's it's uh, I don't want to make another dumb analogy, but I guess I will. You know, it's the sort of, well, when does life begin kind of, um, you know, it's 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 it is arguably another version of that kind of immaculate conception or not immaculate, but the idea of. You know, conception. Just regular old conception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reg- regular old conception. You know, there's nothing immaculate about about how America was born. I mean, we can we can agree on that, but that it doesn't. Um, uh, it, it, I just feel like people are are, are kind of uh, assuming that this gives them a kind of steel knuckles in a in a kind of moral and political debate to say like, oh, but this came from X, and and the right does this too, obviously, because it's like. You know, they have their exceptionalist narrative that they can pump, you know, all sorts of air into about, you know, the you know, the first democratic republic, blah, 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 blah. And it's like that that narrative obviously can't explain why that first democratic republic became the the largest and in, in, in some ways the most comprehensively brutal uh, chattel slave society in the world. And and within a couple decades. So we need to talk about change. Right. I mean, it's a thing, right? Do we need to cue Bowie or something? I mean, it's like, it's really basic. It's really basic. But um, I don't, I think we're, we're, we struggle to imagine it right now. Yeah, everything was, everything is, is, is in amber. Uh, and, and I think at the base level, you have a lot of people, as I said, who are, who are based, who are trying to soothe the, the, the anguish, the despair that comes from knowing that, that all of this, this, uh, misery that's being felt all this injustice that's being felt all this horror that's being visited in front of us in front of our eyes uh has no real uh redress that we can visualize there's nothing there's nothing we can put our backs into that we could feel with any kind of confidence is going to move the needle on any of this stuff and that does create despair and there is a consolation in an explanation of history that sort of tells you well you know this is a poison chalice these are these are uh cursed lands uh, there's nothing we can really do, but what makes people more likely to to move in that direction uh, emotionally and, and imaginatively is when you are swimming in a culture that is dominated by people who don't have an interest in seeing anything change, who only have an interest in appearing to care. And what is a better way to appear to care if you are well-heeled, if you're the New York Times editorial board, or if you're the people who greenlight entertainment uh, and the people who uh, set the tones of, of, of cultural debate, then endlessly 
flagellating oneself about about their uh, white pri- white privilege and about the 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 original sin of American slavery when that only serves to make every possible change seem impossible, which is a perfect uh, unguent for your soul. You get to feel better, and you have no, and you are also undermining any effort to uh, dethrone your ill-gotten wealth and position in society. Amen. Church, church, brother. It's gonna have to be a different man. I'd like to uh, I'd like to pose to to both Matts on the panel today a uh, question that was raised uh, last week. I saw this on Twitter from other Matt in front of the show, Matt Iglesias. Um, he said that, like you know, in, in the context of these uh, you know battles over CRT and the people for and against it, he said it would behoove uh, liberals or proponent or you know people defending um, uh, the teaching of American history from this latest um, you know. Uh, idiotic assaults and culture, you know, this Sharia law, intelligent design, the latest fucking iteration in this endless uh, quest to make America more ignorant. Um, he said it would behoove people to just state for like how, what the, how they think the civil war should be taught at, let's say like a high school level. So like uh, throwing the panel up into the, to the mats, what would be like, what'd be like a simple like, like framework or just conception of the American civil war. And just, I don't know, maybe this is too big a question, but like how just very simply, what, what, what is the correct way for an American high school student to learn about the Civil War in, like, the most basic sense? I mean, I, I, I'll, I, don't have an, I don't have an original answer until my, like, great trilogy of the Republican Party comes out probably in about 30 years from now. But, I mean, I, I can't improve on, you know, from Charles Beard to Eric Foner. This is the second American Revolution and, you know, in, in, all prob- in, in, in a strict sense, the first. You know, this is a moment where uh, this is how I teach it. Um, this is a moment where uh, America's sort of ruling political class uh, was overthrown through political struggle that ultimately led to armed conflict and, in effect, social revolution in half the country. It also, you know, was an era that ultimately saw the consolidation of the capitalist class in the North. But I think we don't if, if we're just trying to explain the Civil War and, and Reconstruction proper, you could just stop it at that first first moment. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's the closest thing we've had and, and maybe ever will have to anything like a classical revolution. I don't know, Matt, what would you add? Uh, I would, I, I think the way to teach it as, 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 as a conflict uh, that was fundamentally political uh, that there was not at the turn of uh, the, 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 the decade there in 1860, there was not an irresolvable conflict between the Southern uh, slave agriculture and northern industrial uh, uh, the northern industrial economy. There was no fundamental conflict that needed that could only be resolved uh, through force, uh, as many people have pointed out in the new uh, the the recent his, uh, reappraisal of southern uh, agri- uh, southern the southern slave economy. It was well integrated into northern capitalism, uh, and there was no uh, crisis of inputs or or uh, that was making their uh, uh, making conflict inevitable the conflict came because of a political the political fact that the vast majority of northerners for one reason or another had gotten to the point where they were no longer going to accede to the continuous southern demand for the extension of slavery that slavery required to maintain itself 
And it is that reality that brought about the Civil War. And then you can talk about why that change happened. And that is a shift that involves the uh, the articulation of anti-slavery sentiment by people like Frederick Douglass and the abolitionists and the Free Soil Party and, and the Wide Awakes uh, and, and uh, all of these forces coming together to to change the stakes of the argument away from where they were in, say, the 1830s, where the average northerner said, let the baby have their bottle, what does it have to do with me, to finding slavery to be a genuine threat to their way of life. And that conflict is what actually brought this, the war about. And if it was a political conflict, then it was something that was created through struggle, through a contest, and was an opened uh moment it, it was it was it was a a time when the the whatever the dna of the country might have been uh it was in flux and it was under challenge and and what we ended up with after the war is obviously not the best outcome uh, you would have wanted uh to see uh which would have been of course the assimilation of former slaves into the polity of america in a way that didn't happen but it certainly was not the worst either and where we ended up was the result of struggle and bad breaks and good ones and and that that is how all history unfolds yeah matt i love what you did just there because i I, the remorselessly political character of this is is a uh what what justifies like my decision to teach this my civil war class like almost entirely in terms of presidential elections and getting super deep into you know the time that john c fremont called you know james buchanan a cuck and and so on and or a you know a, a sad a sad sack virgin who, you know, lacked the capacity to sort of, you know, elope with a woman and so on. And, and just to get into all the intricacies of antebellum politics. But number two, because it 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 absolutely pitches like the book project that I'm working on right now, which is about which is trying to track trace that that galactically important change in northern politics from the 1830s to 1860, when anti-slavery went from this, you know, basically total freak show exiled to the margins, uh, the absolute margins of, you know, not just polite society, but electoral politics writ large, and and to, to actually taking state power through a process, yes, of struggle on all sorts of fronts that happened in with dramatic speed in the 1850s. And I wrote about this, if you're real, if you really want to go deep, I wrote a thing in Catalyst about this, uh, that is a sort of a preview of the argument. But that's the book I'm working now on now about the, the political revolution of 1860 and how the Republicans pulled it off. And yeah, where that goes, you know, in the long run is another story. But this this was a to me, it's it, maybe this is just my own kind of my own way of, of accepting defeat in the present. But um, look, going back to the 1850s, you really do. It is continue. I, I do find it a continuingly, you know, nourishing and inspiring source of um, you know, a sense of political possibility in this in this godforsaken country. Well, as an addendum to that, I'd like to share with you both now. Uh, let's just say another view of the American Civil War. Uh, we're going to do we're going to do a, a history teacher audit. We are going to audit the history book. Um, someone shared this uh, on Twitter this week, and I would like to to run it by you guys. This is an excerpt. From uh, these, uh, basically, this is an, this is a state-approved Louisiana history textbook that is taught to in an eighth-grade curriculum. This is Chapter Ten on Secession and the Civil War. Here, there's just uh, two pages from this now that I, I'd like to I'd like to share with our our eminent Civil War historians here today. So this is uh, yeah Chapter Ten Secession and Civil War. It begins as such. 
Kate Stone was, a 20, was 20 years old and a member of a wealthy planter family when the Civil War began. After Kate's father died, her mother Amanda oversaw the family's business affairs. In 1860, the Stones moved to a cotton plantation near the Mississippi River in East Carroll Parish. With more than 1,000 acres and 150 slaves, the family's future seemed secure. However, in 1861, Louisiana, after Louisiana's secession from the United States in January and the beginning of the Civil War in April, the lives of everyone on the Stone Plantation changed. Secession is the withdrawal of a state from the Union. Kate kept a diary, and she wrote about many of the changes in their lives. Eventually, all five of Kate's brothers served in the war on the Confederate side. In 1861, Kate wrote that the oldest was wild to be off to Virginia because he feared the fighting would be over before he could get there. However, as the war dragged on, worry about her brothers became a constant theme in her diary. Sadly, by the end of 1863, two of her brothers had died while serving in the Confederate Army, one from pneumonia, the other from an accident. In her diary, Kate expressed her firm Confederate patriotism, insisting, Our cause is just and must prevail. But even for a patriot, the war's hardships became difficult to take. Union forces arrived on the family's plantation in 1862. With them came a justified fear that their slaves would abandon the plantation for the freedom they believed the North Union Army would provide. Okay, that's just like the first few paragraphs there. Um, uh, what do you think? Um, uh, critical race theory or a good uh, accurate history lesson for eighth graders? Wait, this is the school curriculum? This is the official te- – this is a state-approved like, history is, textbook. I thought this was like an eighth-grade paper or something. No, no, no. This is, this is an eighth-grade history book that is the, the state-approved curriculum in Louisiana uh, schools. My favorite bit there is their future, like with 150 slaves, their future seems secure. It's like, you know, it's like they, 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 they just, they, you know, everything is just, everything is just peaches going forward. We've got, we've got our like human prison camp going, you know, what else could you want? And then the damn Yankees had to fuck it all up. Well, yeah, no, it's, it's uh, you know, uh, with the Union Army came a justified fear that their slaves would abandon the plantation for the freedom they believe the Union Army would provide. I mean, I mean, again, it was things were secure until the Union Army was knocking on their door. Then things became a little bit more tenuous for Kate Stone and her family. Um, it says here, going on, it says here, in an attempt to limit their, her losses, Amanda Stone sent, sent 120 of her slaves to Texas in 1863. She and Kate were forced to follow the slaves to Texas later that same year. In the family's absence, the few remaining slaves took over the plantation and moved into the family's home, dividing the rooms and the Stone's remaining personal property among themselves. The Stone women would remain refugees, that is, people who were forced to leave their home or country until the end of the war in 1865. They were able to reclaim their plantation, but due to emancipation, the freeing of slaves, lost all their property and slaves. The family had to face the new reality of planting and harvesting their fields with freed people who Kate regretted now demanded high wages. Ah! (laughs) I mean, high wages. How about just wages, period? I mean, how much was she paying for a burrito in 1866? You know, I mean, it was out of control. I mean, that's the thing is that there is a bright, there is a straight line from like the the, uh, ideology of the slaveholder and contemporary conservatism. That's 100% true. You know, the being being the Lord, uh, the, the idea that freedom, the liberty that we have imagined as Americans, is truly the freedom to to dominate, the freedom to to overawe others who are for some reason less than, and that's a hundred percent accurate. But it's one strand in the fucking the tapestry of American history, and it is always being challenged by the forces that its very oppression uh, out uh, unleashes. And that is like the actual thorny reality of history that none of these narratives are able to uh, really capture. And 
a lot of the people who who are now defending, you know, the 1619 project and 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 trying to push for changing curriculum, they point to things like this awful textbook as an example that there is this brainwashing going on uh, at the at the level of uh, education. And I mean, that is that's true. Uh, but that is going to hold wherever the political power to sustain it holds. Uh, but what is also happening and which is shaping a lot of this on both sides and is not subject to any sort of, uh, you know, a school, a school board ruling uh, or textbook is what the culture says. And I think you're going to see a continued effort to, to wipe out any kind of mention of, of slavery and, and uh, oppression from American history at the level of, uh, of education, wherever the right wing is able to hold power. That's only going to exacerbate the trend by which all culture becomes more and more uh, uh, aggressively emphatic in its assertion of the centrality of, of racial and, and, and gender oppression in history. And that that dynamic is occurring in a context of generalized immiseration that is driving everybody to uh, a point of political frenzy and uh, impotence. At the same time, Paralysis, yeah. which is represented by these these history battles. I'm, I'm just I'm just still working with just just sort of beginning to grok just how many Kylie Zimples there were in 1865. Just <laughs> complaining about how, you know, like the you know, my uh, you know, the, the enslaved people on my plantation broke my heart when their compensated wages required me to spend an extra 30 cents on my chicken and dumplings. But the federal government... had gov- to bribe them back into the sharecropping system. But the federal government, once again, the federal government came in and actually, you know, disrupted the natural relation between us, which was, you know, one of chattel property. And if it weren't for, you know, if it weren't for the dang, you know, sort of liberal elites at the helm of the Union Army, then, you know, we really, you know, di- disrupting this this beautiful market system, you know, my red beans and rice would really go down a lot more effectively. Yeah. All right. Uh, last two paragraphs here about the travails of the uh, uh, Kate and her family. Uh, Ray goes on. It says here, uh, Kate felt ambivalent about the end of slavery. But after the war, she did her best to adjust to a world that she felt had been turned upside down. She married, raised children, and devoted herself to memorializing the service of Confederate soldiers like her brothers. She founded the Madison Parish Chapter of the United Daughters of the Confederacy and remained active until her death in 1907. In this chapter, we will examine the political and cultural issues that led to sectional tensions and ultimately led Louisiana to secede from the Union. We will also learn about the wartime experiences of soldiers, politicians, civilians, and slaves in Union-occupied areas of Louisiana and in parts of the state that remained in Confederate hands throughout the war. Finally, we will examine the immediate consequences of the war's end. So yeah, just just a little sample from uh, just, you know, an eighth grade American history textbook. Yeah, I mean, Matt's right that it's like, I mean, I think it is true. And and this is just a nuance, I guess, anything that I said in the piece. Like, I do think they uh, they are in retreat nationally, basically from the lost cause. And I don't I I don't see this um, this like, you know, sort of second confederacy rising. I know, you know, some people are going to disagree and some people are going to think that I'm, you know, blase about that. But I, what I don't deny, and I think this is different, is that absolutely at the local level, these, if you will, sort of survivals of either, you know, that wasn't aggressively lost cause, but it, the kind of, it absolutely had that, you know, the sort of, you know, Confederate nostalgia um, implanted in it. And that's going to, that's going to be a long 
um, those things are going to stick around. As Matt says, as long as the the sort of the political forces uh, in the state want to uphold them. And I don't I don't you know, in, in that respect, um, uh, I guess it, basically if you're talking about sort of like red state state politics of education, uh, I, I would grant that there's a lot of room for, you know, even even some of the, the sort of the liberal narratives that I don't like that I'm critiquing to sort of, you know, uh, I don't know. To, I, I mean, I could see I could see if I'm if I had if I have my head beaten with that Kate Stone stuff all day, I can you can actually see why one would run to the 1619 project, honestly. But the thing is, the way that you're going to beat that is through a political struggle. Right. That's it. Exactly. That's the only uh, you can point to that stuff all day. And it is horrible. And it is filling kids heads with garbage and making it hard, making them worse citizens in every sense. But it's not going to be defeated uh, on the on the terrain that that we've chosen or that we've been left with. It's going to be boring old political struggle or it's not going to happen. Totally. Or, yeah, I mean, you get you get you get sort of various you know, you know, you, you may get some sort of cultural war wins here or there, um, but you won't change the essence. Exactly. Anyway, I think that's a good place to uh, wrap it up here. I want to thank uh, Matt Carr. We will include the link um, to the Harper's essay in the show description. Uh, but before we go, a, uh, if you are interested in uh, more grim and brutal truths about American history, uh, Matt and Chris Wade have got a special project for you. Let's kick it over to Chris. Hello. Uh, I'm not going to belabor the point because you probably already know how this works, but Matt and I have done one of those Stitcher premium shows uh, like blowback, like time for my stories. Ours is called Hell of Presidents. It is a description of American history. It is our story of American history as told through all of the United States presidents. We are doing it in uh, 13 narrative episodes that cover uh one or more presidents by, uh, broken down by era, and then there will be seven bonus episodes at the end focusing on uh, you know, specific eras or themes or uh, facets of the presidency. Will did one about uh, the president in movies. We'll probably have Matt on to uh, Matt Carp on to talk about the Civil War in more detail and has it related to the time period. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Matt, do you want to say anything about it? Yes, it's very exciting. It's going to be fun. We're going to go through all of the, the presidents. We're going to roast them. Uh, and then we're going to, most importantly, uh, demystify and disenchant their their exalted place in history and, and, and contextualize them. Are you guys doing the thing where, you know, every presidential nickname is really a presidential dick name, you know, from <laughs> Slick Willie down to, you know, Old Hickory or James Buchanan, <laughs> the old public functionary? My favorite. Napoleon of the stump. <laughs> yes, yes. Y- young Hickory, uh, you know, yeah, of the Granite Hills, no less. Uh, you, you, bring, you bring that up, Matt, but uh, indeed, I have already recorded an episode. I had a great time discussing the American presidency in American movies, but I got to say, I'm a little disappointed that you did not go with my chosen title for this series, which was 1600 Getting Head Sylvania Avenue. <laughs> They shot us down on that one. We, yeah. we we fought for it, but they didn't go for it. The Little Magician. Do not forget the Little Magician. That is <laughs> oh, that even. Well, of we know. I mean, Bad Beard. All, every one of them. The Red Fox of Kinderhook. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, this whole thing came from you know many many late night on tour bull sessions where uh, you know I can just name a president and get Matt going like uh, you know like pull, pulling a talkie cord on a, on an old fashioned dog. Uh, and I figured that, you know, hey, that's good content. And, um, you know, so the show is me kind of giving a schoolhouse rock rundown of basic American history and just teeing up Matt to uh, go off 
with his analysis and just infinite well of, of presidential uh, trivia and, and details about their life. So, you know, if you're if you're a Kush vlog fan or if you like Matt's inebriated pass and uh, or looking for something a little more structured and focused with a bit of a narrative on it, uh, that's what the show is. There'll be a uh, trailer here. Uh, after it with all the details about how you can get to the show on Stitcher Premium and uh, it launches the first two episodes covering the Constitution and George Washington and then all of the uh, founding generation presidents up through John Quincy Adams as the second episode. Both those will drop on July 2nd and then we'll be going once a week uh, for, I don't know what that would be, like 11 weeks after that, then we move on to the bonus content. So that's the show. Uh, if you like Matt talking about history, uh, that's all you need to know about it. Old man eloquent. <laughs> 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 all right, cheers, guys. Uh, thanks again to Matt Carp for joining us. Thanks, yeah, guys. thanks, Matt. That would be a good Philip Roth novel, Old Man Eloquent, and it's about his dick. <laughs> <laughs> the Presidents. Who are they? What did they want? What did they do? Are they good guys or bad guys? Why the hell should I care? I'm driving to work or resurfacing my deck or like eating a hamburger right now. Quit asking me questions about the U.S. presidents. Why don't you nerds get a life? These are all great questions. I'm Chris Wade, producer of Chapo Trap House. I'm Matt Crisman, host of Chapo Trap House. And we're here to sell you on our new podcast, Hell of Presidents, a history of the United States told through the office of the U.S. president. If you're an American or any of the people around the world who live under the boot of our imperial dominion, you've probably noticed we just went through two presidential elections that appeared as cataclysmic rendings of the fabric of our nation, all to end up with the result of Grandpa Ice Cream sitting in the Oval Office. Kind of makes you wonder, what exactly are we doing here with these guys? We invest an enormous amount of psychic energy into who our presidents are and were, so we figured it would be a good project to try to demystify the office and its history. To figure out if these men are indeed titans of our history, shaping the destiny of our nation and the world through iron will and intellect. Or if they're instead products of their time, subjects of history, constrained and shaped by the forces, constituencies, and events that guided them to office in the first place. Also, years of noticing that after you put a few beers in Matt, he was basically an endless font of off-the-dome presidential history and analysis made me go, damn, that's good content. And well, this podcast was born. I'll be providing a basic historical outline and context. In late January 1825, a Philadelphia newspaper published a letter with a sensational allegation about the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, Quote, the friends of Mr. Clay have hinted that they, like the Swiss, would fight for those who pay best. <laughs> and Matt will be bringing all the explanation and analysis in the signature Christman style you all know and love. Every institution in the Constitution that ended up being built needs to be understood first as a compromise between the various ruling elites of the states, but also an undergirding desire to create baffles and chambers that diffused popular energy and disallowed it to be manipulated from above. Because one thing these guys all agreed on is that there could be no agency, no real political agency from below. And through the presidency, we'll also be tracking the growth of America itself. From a colonial backwater of slave owners and yeoman farmers to an industrial powerhouse to a world bestriding corporate behemoth to a flailing empire at the end of history. So join us as we guide you through our hell of presidents. 
covering the lives, careers, ambitions, bungles, accomplishments, and crimes of all 46 office holders in just 13 episodes plus some bonus content focusing on specific phenomena, crucial moments, and cultural reflections of the American presidency. From Washington to Biden, Come on, man. from the Jackson Cheese to the Trump handsome quarterback hamburger party, many, many French fries. we'll cover it all on Hell of Presidents. Hell of Presidents is available exclusively on Stitcher Premium. To sign up and get a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com slash hell on your mobile or desktop browser. Click Start Free Trial, select a monthly plan, and use promo code HELL.